possible that they can participate with supervision and be a part of that process. They may not be able to do it in the fullest sense, but if we can get 75% out of them, then that's good. You know? uh, we can't expect necessarily 100%, but at least we have certain standards that we set, uh, which they are required to function within. And uh, that's as good as we can do now, with the intention to bring more and more Muslim teachers into our schools. Because, and we said already, that was a failure on the part of the community. You know, this was a fard, kifaya, uh, requirement of the community to provide uh, Islamic education for the children, uh, Islamized education, as taught by Muslim teachers. That is the right of the children of our community. If we don't provide that for them, we are in sin. The whole community is in sin. So that's what we have to work on. We have to develop, correct, improve. And in working together, we can do it. Because Allah has not put any burden which is too great for us to handle. This is reality. We can do it. It's just the will, the means. Inshallah, with Allah's blessing, it can happen. Go ahead. I, I don't know if I'm putting the charge uh, before the horse about this, but uh, it's just about the Eids that we have. But it is known, of course, in Islam that we're supposed to have only two Eids. But we have, you know, celebrations like Independence Day celebrations, you know, and um, I'm just wondering, is there a good way of integrating these celebrations that we have so that we promote patriotism or do we just leave them since we're adding another eat or how what is the best approach to it? The law of the country. If the law of the country allows you to not celebrate it, then it's better not to celebrate it. Um, if you are required by law to celebrate it then you try to keep it yeah, on a low level and also you try to bring out whatever positive elements that you can from it. You know, let it be some moral messages and lessons there. We don't want to promote Nigerian nationalism because we know this was something hated by the Prophet and he spoke against it. Man da'a whoever calls to tribalism, nationalism, is not of us, you know. So we know that it, it has to be from another perspective. So that's what I would suggest, and it will vary according to the needs and the necessities of the circumstance. Into this Islamization of knowledge and education as well. Because in Nigeria, here we have seen the consequences as we have some sex, 
coming up with the idea that even beyond the disabled, the secular system we are operating is prohibited that this is haram and we find it cost the nation, the society, uh, most of money and even things. So I think if this concept has been there, it seems it will not be like this, that somebody will not put the education system as if it's not even part of Islam. And as for him, he won't even join the system. I think, again, that's something I would like to listen uh, In our society, we see, in most cases, we see really Muslims taking our children to the Christian schools. But if you hardly see a Christian child in our own school. So, on this issue, I think by the time more effort and more education are made, I think there will be some kind of solution. Inshallah, we're putting them in Jason prison schools and not vice versa. If our Muslim schools were the best in the country, the top graduates came from our schools, believe me, they would be lining up at our doors. But because our standard is so low, it's so low that even our own fellow Muslims don't want to put their children in our schools. Then, who are we to blame but ourselves? This is the bottom line. We have to raise the standard because excellence is, you know, a part of the deen. The Prophet had said, "Inna Allahu min ahadikum amalan and yuqinah." Allah loves from each and every one of you. If whenever you do anything, you do it to the best of your ability. So the best, itqan, perfection, this is from the deen, part of the faith. But we have neglected it, and we are now settling for anything, second best, etc. But as I said still, in the end, the greatest prize that we give the students should be for moral behavior. When a student does something outstanding in your school, you make an example of that. Look what they did and give them a prize. You send messages. This is how subliminal messages are sent. Because as long as your main prize is for tops in academics, then that's your message. Get those top marks by any means necessary. And for students, cheating is the quickest and easiest way. But when the biggest prize is for moral excellence, then you're sending a very powerful message to them. Give a prize for academics too, but let it be second. Not the big one. So, inshallah, I think we're going to take our break here now for lunch and be back you want to inform them? Great for the male uh, participants for prayer, and then food is served in the dining area for everybody. Okay. And the female as well, there's another room that is prepared for you for prayer. The toilets are downstairs. Uh, for men and females, that's it. Okay. So I'll see you back in an hour, shall we?
All praise is due to Allah and may Allah's peace and blessings be on the last Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and on all those who follow the path of righteousness until the last day. In our previous session, workshop, we looked at the concept of knowledge from the Islamic perspective. The misconception that Islamic studies would be separate from secular studies. We said that the roots of that are from Christian thought and the Islamic approach is an integrated, a fully integrated approach. We also spoke about concepts of knowledge, true and false, revealed and acquired, useful and useless. With regards to revealed knowledge, we said that useless knowledge or the term useless knowledge in relationship to revealed knowledge, this meant what? Age appropriate or circumstance appropriate, you know, means it's relatively useless. It's not useless in and of itself, but it's relatively useless. Even the acquired knowledge, when we say it's useless, it doesn't mean there is no benefit from it. Because even knowledge of the composition of dirt on Mars is useful knowledge at the time when we are planning to go there. So it's, you know, it is useful knowledge at a particular time, but at this time it is useless. Meaning that there, there are other areas of knowledge which are more beneficial, which should take precedence over that. Because when we are seeking knowledge, it should be prioritized. <clears throat> then we talked about the basic concept of education being cultural transfer. This is the core of it. So either you put those facts and figures in a, an Islamic package or it comes in a Western secular package. Western package with its culture. The images, especially in the early years where much of what is taught is taught with stories and pictures, etc. Then so much of their culture is passed on. So we said one of the main challenges that we're faced with is bringing morality back into the classroom. Now, we have been talking about Islamization of education. There's another concept called Islamization of knowledge. That Islamization of knowledge actually is a philosophical study. 
it deals with the theory of knowledge and it's very complex and it involves practically speaking reinvention of the wheel if we distrust the West so much that anything that they have we need to replace it with something we have you know then that is the approach you're going to take but the approach that uh, I have taken which I feel is practical is we build on what others have done you know you reach a certain point uh, we take the best of what they have and we build on it we just don't take it all without any kind of sifting or assessment or picking and choosing what is in fact beneficial so Islamization of education instead is a relatively simple uh, process and that's what we will be focusing on now part of the, the Islamization process or I could say the Islamization process is actually not complete until we actually replace existing books with our own Islamized books this is really ultimately where we need to be as long as it is permitted by the country that we're in some countries insist on standard books being taught in all schools some countries insist on it, you have no choice the government has set a curriculum, everybody has to follow that curriculum I ran into that in India where the government curriculum for those who are taking the government examinations for were standard books, everybody had to use it so the material in it was influenced by Hindu culture stories, their fables and all this is a part of their literature it comes up in their you know, in their explanations for maths and everything when you give word problems all of this stuff comes up so it's a challenge you can't replace the books and this is where the lesson plan becomes your best uh, channel or your best source for Islamization but where you can there are countries which allow you where you can develop your own books then it's worth developing another set of books teaching the same material but teaching it from an Islamic perspective so you're not just doing it in the classroom as a teacher you are presenting that material in an Islamic way you even the textbooks which the children, young people will have in their hands these are themselves Islamized you know this is ultimately where we would like to be if it's at all possible then we should do it and this process is also critical for standardization because 
If it's left only up to the teacher, teachers have different capacities, different levels of motivation and all this. So one teacher might do quite a lot towards Islamization of the curriculum that's being taught. Another might do little. When your teacher who is doing a lot has to go and is replaced by somebody else who doesn't have the same motivation, then the quality of the class drops. So you have, you don't have a steady, um, you could say a steady approach to Islamization of education. It's up and down, up and down. So if you want, the way to do it is to standardize it, to establish some basic standards that whatever teacher comes, they have something to work with. Your ultimate tool is the textbook itself. If you have a textbook which has got everything, you're giving science, it's already been Islamized, everything is prepared, that makes life a lot easier. The teacher makes a lesson plan from a text that is already Islamized, that is the ultimate. But where you can't do the text, then you just work with the lesson plan. Now, if you are able to do both the, the lesson plan and the text, then I suggest that obviously the process by which you set up your lesson plan should be itself structured. If we go from school to school here, I'm sure if we take out each lesson plan, you'll see people have different lesson plans. There are no standardized lesson plans. So we need to establish something standardized. Standardized from the way it's with, in which the, the lesson plan is divided up, set up, etc. As well as standardized in terms of its content. Now, this can only be done if we establish principles for lesson plan Islamization itself. That process. If we say the most critical point in the Islamization of curriculum, Islamization of education, is at the point of lesson plan Islamization. Since that is what guides the teacher in delivering his or her subject. That's your guide. So if that guide has been systematically Islamized, then the lesson that you're delivering will likewise be systematically Islamized. And if it is standardized and you're not here that day, another teacher steps in, they have the stuff to work, they can carry on. May not be quite at the same level you were because you've been teaching it all along, but they can be close. If they're trained teachers, they have a good lesson plan, they can handle it. So in that way, we are systematically Islamizing the curriculum and Islamizing the school. Now, if we Islamize the curriculum, mathematics grade one, you have two or three classes, different teachers, Islamize according to principles 
their curriculum. You have other schools, say the network of schools here, who agree to do likewise. Then, at the end of the coming year, all of the grade one mathematics teachers meet and they share their lesson plans. And from those lesson plans, they create a master lesson plan, which has the best that everybody had come up with for each lesson, all the way through the whole year. Now you have something solid. This is what I'm proposing. This is why I insisted from the very beginning that this workshop be for all the schools. Not just one school, but for all the schools. Because this project ultimately to be of maximum benefit needs to be shared by a number of schools. So, if that master lesson plan is created after one year of operation, you're near the end of the school year now, right? So what we're talking about is next year. Next year this time, at the end of the school year, you meet. Because if you call this now, nobody has been working systematically in Islamization, so it's going to be all kinds of things from everywhere and everywhere. So if we have a plan, in other words, we look for next year, this time, end of the year, we have a structure for the uh, standardized lesson plan format, template, then the structure for Islamization of the lesson plan itself. We're going to come to that. That's what we're doing in this session. Then, at the end of the year, meet, choose the best, now we have the manual. That's our first step. Of course, the first, the prerequisite for that is to have knowledge of the lesson plan Islamization program and also to agree on a standardized template. Because that way it will be easy for us to work together. If everybody uses their own template, then it's, it's confused. It's much more difficult to establish a standardized manual that can be used across all the schools. So at the end of the second year, that master plan, you could call it a state or city master plan, if it can go state, can go national, can go global, that much better. But just working with where you are right now, look at it as a state master plan. You run it for one year now. Everybody is working with the same plan. As you're teaching in your class, you're going to find some things work better than others. Even though, yes, you brought together theoretically what seemed to be the best. But maybe when you come to actually implementing it, you'll find there are some other things that are better. There are other things that can be added and improved on it. So, by the end of the second year, you meet again and you share all those things. You clean it up and now you have that finalized lesson plan.
masculine language everybody will use. And from that, technically speaking, this is what you will use as your guideline. This is the teacher's manual, really. The guideline for establishing your own textbooks. Creating your own textbooks based on your master lesson plans. Now, this might sound like a dream. Let me tell you that in Ghana, in Kumasi, Brother Abdul Nasir, who attended my, some of my workshops like five years ago in the UK, he took this idea, went back to Kumasi and established a, a, a good school, good quality school, because he was concerned about this thing we talked about, that the Islamic school should not be substandard. He got that message crystal clear. He came back, he set up an impressive school and got the teachers, all the things that we talked about. He worked on that, trying to get qualified teachers and all this. And started working with the lesson plans, with the lesson plan um, template and uh, concepts. Of course, since then, further things have developed. Right? You're getting beyond what he had. But what he worked with, Islamization of the material, adding the moral principles in it, he did that one year, two year, third year, he made his textbooks. And he has made textbooks from kindergarten to grade six. For all the subjects, and Alhamdulillah, a, in an institution in Turkey, uh, he sent it to them. They printed the textbooks for him, for all of his students, for free. You see Allah's barakah? Yes. You know? And this detail, this information, inshallah, we'll pass it on to you. You can write that institution in Turkey. They do sell books. But they do give to Islamic schools free also. So you can raise your case, make your presentation to them, they will send you all the books. Now the books may not be perfect. You know, they tried their best working with it, you know, because they're working long distance, the people in Turkey are making it, and you know, they're in Ghana. So some cultural Turkish things were coming in, they had to go back and make them remove them and you know, there was a bit of a struggle there to get it in a format which was uh, appropriate to Ghana, to West Africa, you know. Because the Turkish company, they were used to, they were praying Islamic materials all the time, but Turkish Islamic materials. So all the people look like Turks, right? <laughs> you know, and again, this is the issue, you know. You want the textbook that people should look like the people of the area that the books are coming to. So they, alhamdulillah, work with it until they come up with something, which I think is something very useful. Even if you don't necessarily apply the whole thing, you should have it in your library, use resource books, definitely. And they've made huge strides. 
So know that it is possible. In fact, it has been done. Should have been done a long, long time ago. Um, I had started way back in the 90s promoting this idea from back then. And I had been in committees which were concerned with Islamic education, Islamized education. But these committees which were meeting were meeting mostly in the UK. We met in other places also. But in the meetings, everybody was trying to come up with a new Islamic studies curriculum. And I said, listen, brothers, sisters, it's been done already. We have, by that time, we had about three or four different complete curriculums which had been published, printed, etc. But they were insisting to do a better one. You know, I became frustrated because I really, I, I felt that what was there we could work with. You know, yeah, it's not perfect, but a good thing, you know, get good out of it. So, I then struck out on my own to try to implement what I thought was needed. And that was the Islamization of the so-called secular subjects. So I took English, English, and I took a template a series called the Gin Readers. I don't know if some of you know it from English or not. The Gin Readers, very popular out of England. I had seen it being used in Saudi Arabia in schools which I taught in. It was the most popular series. So I took that series and I said, I will make an Islamic version of this. So I got an early childhood expert and we started with the books from kindergarten up to grade three, this was a series of 56 books we produced in three years. The book that I'm going to show you here is the, in the series was called Iman Reading Series, not named after my wife, but it was called the Iman Reading Series, uh, English Reading Series, and it had it began with pre-kindergarten, as I said, it went up to grade three. Uh, each level had like two set series, two sets of six books on each level. So the total was the 56 books, including workbooks. So here is an example uh, from level three, book four, for age seven plus. And this is just one story from the book. Just to give an example, this is, uh, it's called the book with the that particular book was called Trips to Remember. It had different stories of different families who had gone on trips. You know? And in this story, Muhammad and Fatima, they go to the beach with their, with their uh, parents. And, you know, of course, you see the beach, then the images are Islamic type images. Huh? So, they build uh, sand castles and somebody's playing with a frisbee and the dog catching it, you throw the dog, catches it, brings it back. The dog runs and knocks over the kids and knocks over the castle that they were making. So out of it, the kids start throwing stones at the dog because the dog broke their, ca their, their castles. Then the mother stops them, no, 
you know, they shouldn't do that. And explains to them that, you know, the dog is not at fault. You know, you shouldn't hurt another animal. So some moral principles coming here now, right? It was just a little story about going to the beach, playing at the beach, making yourself. But now, the dog is introduced. And I, I particularly chose the dog because Muslims have a problem with dogs. You know? The non-Muslims, they see Muslims and dogs, they say, what is it with you Muslims and dogs? You know, when they bring a dog, Muslims will run in all directions. You know? You know? Because people have gone to extremes in dealing with the dog. You know? Islam has specified, yeah, if he eats out of the vessel you're eating from, yes, you clean it seven times, one time with clean earth, etc. Yeah. But it's not everything. If he touches you, you know, you have to go clean your garden. He brushes against you, you know, you have to go make your window is broken. All kinds of ideas people have. But in fact, none of this is the case. None of this is the case. If you touch a dog, it's not haram. It doesn't break your wudu to touch a dog. The Quran speaks about hunting dogs. Mukallabin. It speaks about hunting dogs. Meaning that it's Muslims hunted and are allowed to hunt with dogs. And when, it, when you hunt with a dog, what does it mean? You send the dog out, catches a rabbit, and he brings it back to you. Now how does he bring it back? He brings it back in his hands, the front paws, he runs on his legs and brings it to you. No, he's taking it in his mouth. He's taking it in his mouth. And what do you have to do now? Take it and wash it seven times? <laughs> no. You cook, the, you cook the rabbit and you eat it. So we have gone to extremes. You know, made our lives very difficult because of misunderstandings, ignorance concerning the dog. So this is why I chose the dog. Could have been something else. Anyway, the point is, the, they are told about being um, kind to animals and not to harm animals. Then they sit and they eat a meal, beginning with Bismillah. And uh, they talk, they, they discuss about something about the, um, why they're eating, for example, beef. You know, and it's an animal. He told us not to harm the throwing stones. <laughs> you know, now you're eating. <laughs> you know, these are the kinds of questions that the children will respond to, and, you know, will, will come up with, and then it's explained to them that Allah said it's okay for us to eat the, the animals because they were made halal for us. Okay? And then um, they finished the extra food they had, they gave it to the dog, the dog ate, and so on and so forth. So, they were uh, kind at the end, towards the dog, and they built an even bigger castle than they had before. Simple story. But many messages, moral messages, Islamic messages, sent through this story. So, if the children, they learn the principles of English, then they have to read, they have to have reading books.
to build on those, what in Arabic we call nusus, the books you learn Nahu, and then you have nusus books in which you utilize the skills, that you, grammar skills you've learned in those books. So an example of what we can do, what we can produce from scratch. We can produce alternative texts and obviously if we did this in science, in maths, in everything else, then this is where the message is coming. That we are giving Islamic messages in every textbook that these children read. This is going to have a huge impact on the students. Uh, sorry, uh, that's the wrong thing here. I'm a progressive Okay, that was actually the tail end of the previous session. The third session we're entering now, the principles of lesson plan Islamization. I have identified five basic principles. If these principles are implemented, you have an Islamized lesson plan, guaranteed. And it's not necessary to implement every one of the five. Four out of the five, three out of the five, maybe all that you are actually able to do because of the material that you're dealing with. One of the five, you cannot do without. But the other four are, you try to do as much of them as possible. So the idea is to incorporate these principles in each and every lesson plan. The first principle relates to the classroom environment. As they say, one picture is equal to a thousand words. In our classrooms, we are putting images, pictures in the classroom. So we need to be very specific about these images. Right now, we just find a nice picture, we stick it on the wall. A poster, nice same, stick it on the wall. We just stick things on the wall. But we have to consider the walls of our classrooms like a textbook that we are teaching something from every image that we put on the wall. So we choose these images carefully. We search for the best images which will convey what we want to convey. And each image that we put up there should convey an Islamic message. That's the point. That when the children look around, because it's 
they do? They look around the classroom, their eye falls on something, there's an Islamic message coming. Which they can understand. It should be not a beautiful saying in language which is above their level. They can't read it, they can't understand it. It might be visually attractive to us, but we have to think about them. So we make sure that every image, you have to do a picture of the body. You're going to do a class on body parts. The body. We get pictures, there are standard pictures you can get from bookstores and, you know, where they have a little boy standing there naked. Or he has just his underwear on. I've gone into Muslim class, I've seen this. Just his underwear, little, it's a little small underwear. The thighs are exposed. Ah, but it's just a kid. A message is being sent. A message is being sent. Because we are supposed to teach the kids that between the navel and the knee, as a boy, should be covered, should be exposed. That's your aura. So that picture on the wall is violating Islamic principles. You are teaching the children that it's okay to show your thighs. But it's only a five-year-old kid. It's not the point. You know, these things, we need to teach the children from their young. We have a tendency to dress our children, especially the girls and that. We'll dress them in very short dresses and tight leotard uh, spandex. But they're only little kids. Don't they look cute? You are sending bad messages. The girls grow up wearing tight clothes when they reach puberty, you want them to wear loose clothes? Ah, they don't like it. It doesn't feel comfortable. They're used to wearing tight clothes. Modern fashion is tight clothes. Western fashion is expose the aura. Islamic fashion is cover the aura. Opposite. So, it's better I'm not saying you have to cover the kid up in a jilbab and niqab and, you know, she's only three years old. <laughs> okay, I'm not saying go, you don't go to one extreme or the other. We try to find the balance. Find that balanced point. But she wears whatever little garments you put on her, they are loose. So she's comfortable in loose clothing. So when she gets to be 13, time of puberty, 14, she's used to wearing loose clothing. If somebody even suggested to her to wear tight, she would not feel comfortable. It feels uncomfortable. She's not going to like it. That's what you want. So these are messages we send. So that is your classroom environment. Every class that you teach, you put up some posters which are relative to the class that you're teaching. There are some standard posters that you have around the classroom. Maybe you change them because you're working 
on a thematic approach. Every month you have a different theme which is shared by the school, all the classes, so you change those every month. But think about it, that the walls of your classroom are like a book. You have a purpose for every page. You have a message in every line. So this is your classroom environment. That is the visual environment. Then of course, the oral environment, most of you I'm sure are already doing it, when you go into the classroom, so you greet the students, Salaam Alaikum, not hi. How are you all today? No, it's Salaam Alaikum. Salaam Alaikum. This is a dua. It has much more value than hi. You say hi, what does hi mean? Hi and low and what? What is this hi? So, we give them Salaam Alaikum and we let them know why Salaam Alaikum is better than Hai. So it's not just that you don't use Hai, you also have to let them know why we say Salaam Alaikum and what Salaam Alaikum means. As much as you can get to their little minds. So they can appreciate Salaam Alaikum. And other phrases, you know, when things happen in the classroom, you know, something strange or something unusual, you say, Subhanallah. You know? In other contexts, people say, Jeez. What do you mean, Jeez? Jeez is a short for Jesus. That's what it is, Jeez. It's a short for Jesus. Because that's what in the West, people will also say, you know, some are more careful, they don't like to use it that often, they'll say Jesus. That we say Subhanallah, they say Jesus. Jesus Christ. Subhanallah. Alhamdulillah. These are well-known phrases. We just try to use them where it is appropriate. Get them to use it also where it's appropriate. Let them know what it means to the degree that we're able. Every day somebody is going to sneeze. In every class, every day, somebody is going to sneeze. So tell them, Alhamdulillah, Yarhamu Allah, Yahdikum Allah, Fuyusilah Bala. The physical environment Favoring the right. You know this is from the Sunnah. To favor the right. Who, who is organized this something? Is, uh, huh? Where is the person who did the set of the sound? It's squeaking though. Well, I think, I think it's going red. The battery is going. Okay, so the physical environment. Favoring the right. The kids are coming in the classroom, let the one on the right go in first. Alright? Let the one on the right go in first. Also, depending on the age, if they ask you why, why favor the right? 
What do we tell them? Huh? It was the practice of the Prophet ﷺ to favor right. This was his way. If the kids get are older and and they now want to know more about this favoring right, then it is possible for us to give them additional information about the right. Uh, on the day of judgment, those who are going to paradise receive their books in which hand? The right hand. So it's a reminder about the day of judgment. The focus. The visual we spoke about already and the objective of all of this is to create an Islamic cultural atmosphere in the classroom itself. We should do the same in our homes. You know, as we do it in the classroom, we should do the same in our homes. So in terms of your resources, because you're going to need help in getting material, the Islamic art teacher should be a good help. In some schools, they don't even have an Islamic art teacher. Because the general attitude towards art is that it's haram. But in fact, there is a lot of leeway and room in education, especially for children, in the use of art. And in any case, if you're not using figures, then art is wide open. And it is a part of Islamic culture to have developed things and designed things in artistic ways. It is perfectly legitimate. And children who have artistic leanings, etc., we should favor it and direct it in a good direction, rather than say, haram. We should know and stay within the bounds. If Prophet Muhammad allowed, allowed Aisha to have dolls, to have a little a horse with wings, he allowed Aisha to do so. Who are you to stop your children from having dolls or uh, images, etc., using them? Unless you think you're better than Rasulullah. So, where there is leeway, the Prophet has himself allowed this, then we should not restrict and make life difficult for our children. Because part of making learning fun, enjoying the learning, it's going to involve for them, to a large degree, some form of art, images, pictures, stories, etc. And the other major resource we call Sheikh Google. Alhamdulillah, it makes life a lot easier than in the days 20 years ago there was no Google. Going to find images was a huge challenge. The second principle is that of Islamic historical relevance. The idea here 
is to connect the students with history, with Islamic history. What is being taught, what is being taught in the educational circles globally is Western history. So the students will graduate from schools, they will know Einstein, they will know Newton, they will know all those Western names. But if you mention Al-Biruni, you say, what? Is that some kind of noodles? Or spaghetti? Biruni spaghetti sounds good. Al-Haythami. Is that a drink? A new drink on the market? This is, they have no idea who are these people. And these were masters in their fields in science, in producing a lot of what is being done in Western science today is built on what they developed. So they should know these names. I'm not saying don't know Newton or don't know Einstein, but know Biruni and Haythami, you know, Ibn Sina, know these people. So this is important because then the young person feels that Muslims have contributed. You cannot go to any field without finding that Muslims have contributed in this field, one way or another. Even the computer. Even the computer, there are Muslim scientists, mathematicians, who laid the foundation for the, the modern-day computer. Most people don't know that, have no idea. So, it's important, this is Hassan ibn al-Haytham. He is known in the West as al-Hassan. From al-Hassan he became al-Hazan. He was a pioneering scientific thinker who made important contributions to understand, or to the understanding of vision, optics, and light. So you're teaching a class optics? They should know al-Hassan ibn al-Haytham. You can see the picture in the middle, it's all written in Arabic, he's describing the eyes, those are two eyes there and the nose in the middle, if you couldn't figure it out. Now, the idea, as I said, is to connect the students with their cultural past, and to let them realize that Muslims contributed in all fields of learning. Resources. There's a book, there are pictures of it right there. It's called 1001 Muslim Inventions. You can download that book from kalamullah.com. This was produced in the UK for a big exhibition which was made there back in around 2010. They made a big exhibition there. And they gathered all of these major contributions made by Muslim scientists, which most people have no idea about. And they made a kid's version. You have there 1001 inventions and awesome facts. That's for kids. For the lower kids, the other one you can use for the, the secondary school, etc. And even you can draw from it and use it uh, for the primary schools. So we have resources. If I told you this 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you would say, how? Where? 
now it's at the fingertips. You can have it by just clicking on the internet, calabolaw.com, 1001 Inventions, and there's the book. Download the book. This book, hard copy, should be in the library, every Muslim school library. Multiple copies that all the teachers can go and take from it and benefit. Of course, the, the other source, the, um, the other source of, of material, I mean, can be through Google. You can do uh, further research to expand if you're doing uh, other topics which are more complex, you know. Um, simple facts, for example, like the inventor of the uh, fuel for rocket ships which took the first man to the moon was an Egyptian scientist. He is the one who developed it. They brought him to America gave him American citizenship, but he was a Muslim scientist from Egypt. And the top heart surgeon in the world known Majdi there in, in, in uh, London, Muslim physician. So, like this, even in modern times, there are many who have contributed and are outstanding in their various fields. We can collect that kind of information and utilize it in our classes. The third principle is a relevant Quranic verse. For example, you're doing a class on water, Maraj al-Bahraini al-Taqiyah. He released the two seas so that they meet with a barrier between them which neither can cross. Surah Rahman, there is that barrier, you can see it. Or you're dealing with the body, you have the, the verse about Allah creating and proportioning the fingertips of every human being. So no two fingerprints are the same. But when we are going to use the Quranic verses, we should use the appropriate verse. It's not just any verse. What has become a standard practice in Muslim events, gatherings, etc., we have somebody read the Quran to start. He will pick a verse and he reads verse, so many verses, whatever. People are sitting there and nobody understands what he's read. The translation is not even given. And even if the translation was given, it has no relevance to the gathering. What have we done to the Quran? What have we done to the Quran? For most people, they are only enjoying his recitation. If he is melodious, it sounds nice. MashaAllah. <laughs> so it's like, you know, songs. You like this singer or that singer, the other, Michael Jackson, whatever. We have a Quranic version. This is not what the Quran is for. The Quran is a book of guidance. Who then? It's guidance. How can you get the guidance if you don't know what it's saying? 
So at least in your gatherings, the minimum is that everything you read from the Qur'an should be translated so people understand what Allah is saying. Because the purpose of the reading should be to share something of the words of Allah with the people. But most importantly, what you're sharing should be relevant. You have a title of the lecture, you have a theme of the event, then the Quranic verse you can find touching on that same topic. So get a verse which is, it makes some effort. You know, there are easy ways, oh, oh come. Discipline and values in the teachers, let alone the students. Okay. I think that you need to look at your criterion for hiring your teachers. This is the starting point. When you hire the teachers, that interviewing process, you know, what were you looking for? Um, the person, their background, their history, their activities. You know, if you get somebody who doesn't have any connect with the Islamic awareness of the community, the efforts that are made, Islamic social or uh, activities, family activities, a person who is isolated from all that, then, you know, this is going to be a problem in your Islamic school. So you have to be selective on who you hire. But of course, you know, as, as you may say, you didn't say it, but you may say, we don't have too much to choose from, you know, we're in that situation. Well, then, one of the things that has to be done is we have to plan for the future. Yeah? We have to direct some of those who are active in the community into education. To get those who see that commitment, that vibrancy, etc., to become educators. So that the time would come when they would come back and uplift five teachers. Not that they went to university, got a bachelor's in mathematics. So you say, okay, come teach math. Now, you might be able to get away with that in the higher grades because they're like adults you're dealing with almost, right? So you can get away. But now when you have to teach primary, grade one, grade two, mathematics, simply because you have a degree in mathematics doesn't mean you're going to be an effective teacher of mathematics to grade one, two, three, because their needs are different. Their psychology is different. You know, if you haven't learned how to teach, then what are you going to do in the classroom? So, it is critical that, that you hire people who are properly qualified. If they're not properly qualified, you say, okay, I don't have any choice. Nobody comes to me who's qualified. Then, you need to set up a program by which they are qualifying themselves. So, for example, my university, Islamic Online University, we have a bachelor's diploma 
and certificate in education. But it is the Islamic College of Education. So they will teachers will learn what is taught in conventional universities, but from an Islamic perspective, a comparative perspective. You know? So that the theory of education as understood in the West is compared to that from the Islamic perspective. And the methods which are used for the teaching, etc., you know, again, looked at uh, from both sides. Taking the benefit from what has been developed in the West, because it doesn't mean simply because it came from the West, it's of no value. No. You know, they have made greater efforts <coughs> in these last you know, centuries than Muslims who have fallen into a slumber. So now Muslims are waking up and bringing back that consciousness into the educational process, put them into some of the courses. You know, it's online. So it means they don't have to stop teaching to study it. They can do it in their spare time. You might say, well, they're not motivated. Then, if they're not motivated, you have a problem in who you chose, first and foremost. You should choose somebody who, when they give them the opportunity, yeah, they say, wait, wait, I can do that? Yeah. They'll be eager. That's what you should have. And then you add to it, because of course if they're going to make that additional effort, etc., you add an increment in their salary. At the end of the year, if you complete this course and so you increase your qualification, we'll pay you more. I mean, we don't want to make it the goal, main goal, but that is added incentive. People know you make a greater effort, your efforts are recognized, rewarded, and you get something for it too. Why not? So these are approaches that we can take to deal with the current situation. How we chose becomes critical in the very beginning. What we already have, we try to improve. And we also try to prepare for the future. Okay? Ritual, that Islamization, the lack of um, the zeal or the feeling that as a teacher I must impart the Islamic values in students. I feel this is a. But uh, this goes back. This goes back to the same, uh, you know, quality of what you hired, as they say in, in um, IT, garbage in, garbage out. These wonderful things. What you have to do is to try to recycle it, make it better, you know, another product by giving them exposure to further education and motivation, etc., etc. We'll be looking further though uh, at the importance of these spiritual values that we need to get back into the educational process. Go ahead, please. Um, just a few comments that I would like to make, particularly with regards to the quality of teachers we find. 
um, you said something that's very true, which is that it's difficult to find qualified, dedicated Muslim teachers. In our school, we actually have um, a subject area, English. Of the six teachers we have, there is no Muslim amongst them. They are all non-Muslims. It's not as though we have a policy, of course, not to employ Muslims. But each time we conduct interviews, the Muslims always fall far behind. It's not just in English, in a number of other subjects. Even where you have Muslims with uh, paper qualifications, when they go through the interview process, they cannot scale the process. We are yet to fully understand why that is so. What's even more worrying to note is that when we advertise as a Muslim school that we are looking for teachers, among the people who turn up, the females are very few. We might have 20 applicants and just one or two Muslim women, sometimes no Muslim women at all. This is a problem that's plaguing the community here. So we are sometimes forced to simply accept those who are qualified, even if they are not Muslims, even though one of the main focus, the main focus of the school really is excellence in character based on Islamic moral values. Having said that, however, I would like to just mention that sometimes it's possible to an extent, to try and instill values where you have non-Muslim teachers, they can still help with that. Provided the values are made clear, the actions that should express such values are made clear. And both for Muslim and non-Muslim teachers, the standards are set by the school, observation is done by those in charge, there's evaluation and feedback given to the teachers about how, far they are, how well they are doing regarding instilling these values through their conduct in the students. The other challenge I know we face as Muslim schools when it comes to taking the school as an act of ibadah, it's a concept that's true and correct. Sadly though, some Muslims do not equate ibadah with excellence. To them, ibadah simply means pray, fast, wear hijabs, dress in certain ways, and it ends there. When it comes to education, they see it kind of differently. We've had some parents who would say, why do your fees have to be so high? After all, it's a Muslim school. But we know the conundrum. If a school is to be properly run, particularly in Nigeria where you don't, we don't get funding or support, it needs money. It's expensive to run a school. Right here when we're sitting in the hall, the light went out. I presume that's the power that was cut. And I'm assuming now we're probably running on generators. The generators need fuel, fuel costs money. It costs money, but some people say, why should your school spend, ask so, for so much money to be paid for tuition when it's a Muslim school? We even have some teachers who would say, why should you sack a Muslim teacher who has actually broken some contractual obligations? It's a Muslim school, is there no room for forgiveness? I think perhaps that's something that should um, be addressed as we go forward. What does it mean when we say it's a Muslim school? What does it mean when we say the school is established for the purposes of Ibadah? And does being a Muslim school mean we have to be substandard? Does it mean the teachers have to be substandard? Does it mean anybody who says I'm a Muslim should get a job? Even if they can't deliver, whether spiritually or intellectually. 
I just want to make that comment because these are some of the problems that Muslim schools face. Thank you. Those points that you mentioned were addressed. Uh, perhaps you came in late. Did you? No, I didn't. You didn't? Oh, okay. They're reiterating what was said earlier. But um, uh, these are all real concerns. And um, as I said, uh, one of the key factors, uh, once we get past the proprietors, the key factors, uh, is the education of the teachers. That's why we're, uh, I stress the importance of gain, letting all the teachers be engaged in upgrading their qualifications. You know, if you've hired teachers who are unqualified Muslims or non-Muslims uh, who are unqualified, then there should be a clear program for them. As I said, my university has a certificate program, has which the one-year program has a two-year diploma program as well as a bachelor's uh, in uh, education with teacher training, um, everything being taught from an Islamic perspective. So you can require your staff to be registered and training and follow their results, see how they're doing, etc. You know, um, you can provide whatever incentives that you need to provide to make them be engaged, but, but if the majority of your staff are unqualified and you're not doing anything to upgrade, improve, then you are not going to go forward. No matter what motivation and things you give them, if they don't have the skills, they can't produce. You know, They can only produce if they have the skills, the knowledge uh, to be able to effectively deliver what is uh, required of them. Okay, um, uh, it's been suggested we're going to take a tea break now. Uh, so, uh, we have one more question. We'll take this last one. Um, of course, my name is Alex Isandam. Um, my own is not really uh, a question, but rather a suggestion or a comment. For indeed, the teachers we are talking about, of course, they are very difficult to get in this kind of environment. And we know that in every environment, teachers are working through a certain process or a system. For you to be a teacher, you must have to go through a given system. All the systems that we have on ground in this environment do not produce this kind of teachers. All the systems, be it the colleges of education or what have you, and that's the kind of teachers we're having. So for us to get these kind of teachers at hand, we need to produce schools that will graduate these teachers. Taking us back through your talk, you made mention of opening schools as an ibadah. Of course, if we take this as an ibadah, that means we should look into giving the society what, it's, what it has an immediate need in, which is teachers that have good and sound Islamic background. So this is my comment. That's a comment, so it doesn't really require me to say anything further. Yeah. But, uh, inshallah, uh, we need to work towards this end, and this is why I was also proposing the university, because the university is a, a way by which teachers can continue to teach while upgrading their skills. Because in most cases where you have to leave your institution, 
to go and study, take a year out, two years, whatever. You know, it's not practical. So this is a very practical approach. It can be done in the institution on a group basis. You know, if, you could have, if you want to ensure that the teachers are all doing it, you can set aside certain time on the weekends or whatever, where they study it together. There's many different approaches you can take offline and online towards upgrading the standards of the teachers at an affordable uh, rate. Barakallahu alaykum. We'll take a break now. Okay. Now, alaikum. Uh, the tea is served outside here, please, so you can move outside again. I think we have 10, 15 minutes, Doctor. Uh, as a, an Islamic college of education, they also offer a degree in psychology is taught again from some perspective and uh, for example in the West uh, no one is allowed to set up a school without having a Muslim child, uh, sorry, a, a child psychologist on campus. You know, this is something in the third world you won't find any Muslim psychologist so it's just a dream. But we need to produce Muslim child psychologists. There's a huge need across the Muslim world. Uh, we also offer Islamic banking and finance. And so many people have financial issues which involve riba and what to do and what not to do. We have also bachelors in Islamic banking and finance. Also bachelors in business administration and information technology. All taught from an Islamic perspective. And it's an extension of what we are working on. Because once we get through the Islamization of schools on the school level, when you go to university, it should also be Islamized. The need there is as much as it is on the primary and secondary levels. Anyway, <clears throat> continuing on from our previous workshop, we'll enter into workshop two, where we're focusing on education. This is the, was the second principle. The first was the educator. We looked at the institution, the educational institution, the educator. Now we're going to look at the educational process itself. Now, what we'll be looking at in uh, this session here will be the theory of knowledge from the Islamic perspective and uh, that will be our focus. We will go later into uh, Islamic uh, book publication. This is part of, the, of what we're actually putting in the classrooms, what the children should have to learn from, what the teachers should be teaching from. We'll look at that. We can't do too much with that right now, but it's still something we should look at for the future. And then following that, we'll go into the principles of uh, lesson plan Islamization. So, to begin with, we're going to look at the theory of secular and religious knowledge. From the Islamic perspective, there is no secular 
knowledge. If that knowledge is true, it's real, it is ultimately from Allah. Islamic studies has become a separate subject which is taught along with the secular subjects in the school. So we have teachers teaching English, as was expressed before, mathematics, all the others, and then we have Islamic studies, we have Arabic, and we have uh, Quran. And usually schools feel that's now our Islamic school, because we've introduced Islamic studies, Arabic, Quran. So we have the secular and the religious. But this dichotomy, this split between the secular and religious is not from the Islamic way. It is from the Christian way. They made this distinction between the two based on a statement attributed to Jesus in which he supposedly said give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. Oh, you all know that. <laughs> huh? But from the Islamic perspective, everything is God's. Everything is God's. So there's nothing special for Caesar and then special for God. So that's how the Holy Roman Emperor, you know, Empire functioned. You had the secular ruler who was the Caesar and the uh, religious ruler who was the Pope. I mean, that was the division of power. Each one had its own sphere. But that is not the Islamic approach. Unfortunately, our schools have arisen following that separation. And of course, that creates in the mind of a student, you know, this compartmentalization of Islam. Because what happens is that the most important subjects they're taking are the secular subjects. This is the one that's going to determine their future, whether they get into university, what stream they go in, and all these other different things. You know, Islamic studies, religious studies, is like a, a something, okay, we're called ourselves Muslims, so we should have it. But it's not that important. If they fail it, it doesn't mean that they fail in their future studies. So, uh, that's a wrong perception. This is not an integrated perception. The Islamic approach was an integrated approach. Because all knowledge, true knowledge comes from Allah. It's all one. And that's why when you look at the manuscripts of the great scholars of the past, scientists and others, when they wrote on medicine, for example, you see in their manuscript, they will be talking about different surgical procedures, and then they will say, and the law said, they quote the Lord Christ. You read on further, they're describing further, then they say, and Rasulullah sallallahu said, and they carry on. You know, it was just a natural part of the whole process. It wasn't something put off to the side. So, for the Islamic school to truly be successful, then that integration, that reintegration 
needs to take place. And the workshop that we're doing is basically to lay the foundation for the reintegration. And one of the other things that we should also realize too that in the process of the secularization, and this is a product of 20th century Western civilization's growth and development, it went secularized, removed uh, religion from education, from the educational process, taken out completely. And what went out with it are the moral principles and values. So when you remove the moral principles and values from the educational process, it's just purely materialist. Everything is studied purely on a material basis. This is going to get you your degree, which will get you money. You can live happily ever after. That is the philosophy. As such, the consequence of it can be seen in the last half of the previous century, 20, 20th century, the last half, we saw, because the, the, the secularization really came to its fruition in the last half of the 20th century, we saw a phenomenon happening in schools across America where children were coming into schools with weapons shooting their classmates, their teachers, the principal. You know, it was happening across the country, school to school, time and time again. This was something they had never seen before. It was not in their history. And they, they couldn't make the connect that what you've done, because you've removed morality out of education, the kids are responding not based on any moral principles. I am hurt. My girlfriend dumped me. I'm so mad about it, I'm going to come and shoot all my classmates. You know, where is the moral connection? These acts are not seen as, it's not seen as morally wrong. So, this reintegration actually is a part of the process of bringing morality back into the classroom. You could say this is one of the main goals, to bring morality back into the classroom. So that the child in every class that he or she takes, from kindergarten to grade 12, they are exposed to moral principles, which would guide them and help them to develop into morally sound individuals. So, going back to the theory of knowledge that we spoke of, we said that from the Islamic perspective, knowledge is either true or false. True knowledge is from Allah. False knowledge is from Shaitan, the only other place. Human beings, maybe the one actually stating it, but it's coming from Shaitan. Shaitan wants us to be diverted by false knowledge. So, can you give me an example of false knowledge? 
Yes, Darwin's theory of evolution. That's the, probably the biggest, you know, conglomerate of false knowledge that is propagated by Western civilization today. And it's reached all of our books, our textbooks across the world. Human beings evolved from apes or ape-like creatures, a common ancestor with the apes. Why? Why did they go there? Because they disbelieved in God. It was now necessary to find another explanation for how we got here. That's what it's all about. That's what's at the bottom of it all, right? They don't necessarily say it. I mean, people will be Christians and they believe in evolution. They're going to schools and accepted it. But that's what's at the root of it. How to explain our existence without God. Evolution explains how we got here. How we look like the way we look and etc. Of course, it is a theory. It's not a fact. There are facts which are used by the theory which we cannot deny. The bones of the dinosaurs and all these other kinds of things. We can't deny that. These are facts. Now the bones that they found that they said, okay, this was the early man and this bone now, set of bones, is looking like a monkey. We say, well, who says it was an early man? You said it is. You're the one. Why? Because that monkey was doing something that the other monkeys weren't doing. Does that make that person a man? That uh, fossil a man? And what they do from the bones, they will create a figure. You know, and it, right down to the color of his eyes. And can you imagine figuring out the color of the eyes from a skeleton? If you've taken any kind of science, you know that this is impossible. But what has happened is that it has been, you know, glamorized by Hollywood. So they will show you the whole process. And then people see it, you know, as I said, it's a lie. If you say it enough times, it becomes the truth. People see it. You say, they say, I've seen it. I've seen how that one egg became, you know, one cell became multi-cell, then became a fish, and the fish crawled on land, and, you know, it started to fly, and, you know, I've seen it. But what you saw was a Hollywood movie. You didn't see it, you know. But, you know, we're now so attuned to, to being uh, convinced by what we see visually that we're taking this as fact now. People find it hard to hear, when they hear somebody say, no, no, it's not, it's not fact. It's, no, no. They, they, I'm sure. I'm certain. I have no doubt this took place. This is what has happened. Through Hollywood, you can create a reality out of falsehood. If we take the true knowledge, that true knowledge, which comes from Allah, has come in two forms. In revealed knowledge, 
That's the Quran, the Sunnah, the Injil, the Torah, the Sunnah of Prophet Ibrahim and Prophet Adam. That is revealed knowledge. The other body is what we call acquired knowledge. We acquired it. We say we invented it. But reality, when you look at the biggest inventions in the West, the greatest discoveries in the West, when you look at the bottom of actually what happened, they will say, by accident. Digging and searching for one thing, something happens, oh, look at that. Ah, we discovered it. No, you didn't discover it. <laughs> you didn't discover it. You were looking for something else, you didn't discover what you were looking for, and then something, accident happened, so-called accident, and you found it. But you weren't even searching for it. The classical case is that of x-rays. You know, those of you that know the science, Madame Curie, you know, very famous, discovered x-rays. How did she discover x-rays? Was she looking for x-rays? A way to look into the body and see the bones under the skin without having to cut. Was she looking for that? No. She's in her laboratory doing certain research. She has some radium in the laboratory. She's doing research on radium and so on and so Then she has some photographic film hanging on another side of the, 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 her laboratory. Her hand passed between the radium and the, and the uh, photographic film. See the bones on her hand? She was not looking for it. And this is how important this is in science, in medicine, etc. Huge! By accident. And you go back and you look at all of the big ones, this is what you find. The internet! This is the biggest one in front of us right now. We think it was discovered by the West. They weren't looking for it. You know what they were looking for? The Higgs boson uh, particle. The Higgs boson particle they call the God particle. They were looking for the God particle, the particle from which everything is built. You know about atoms and electrons that go down smaller, quarks and go down smaller, smaller. They're looking for the smallest one, which could not be divided after that. That's it. That is God. You found him. That's what they're looking for. They set up huge, you know, centrifuge there in, in, uh, in Europe, going under the, the Alps. Huge, from going through four or five different countries, so big. They have one in the U.S. also. And there's firing, you know, atoms and they're smashing them into each other and looking to see what came out. What, what. Now, in the process of sharing their information, between the scientists in America and the scientists in Europe, they accidentally came across the internet. You go, go and Google internet and you see after they explain, by accident. The biggest discovery of this time, by accident. So we say, this accident you're talking about is Allah. Allah is revealing at this time knowledge that is useful, actually critical for us Muslims. This is one of the greatest, you know, gifts that Allah gave us. At a time when the media 
is completely in the hands of the West. Where they can say anything they want, you know, back in the 80s, late 70s, 80s. They could say anything. We had no reply. Would not be heard. We had no control in the media at all. Then came the internet. Anybody can write anything. <laughs> you don't have to be a specialist or you can write anything there. You know. So now we had the chance to bring information about Islam, you know, tackle their lies and false propaganda, etc. on a scale unimaginable. They're using it to promote all their falsehood. But we also have the chance to equally produce the truth. So Alhamdulillah, the numbers of people accepting Islam through the internet is phenomenal. Thousands around the world, daily, people are accepting Islam on the internet itself. It's a gift from Allah SWT. So, this is from what we call the acquired knowledge. But now, of that acquired knowledge, some of it is useful and some of it is useless. <coughs> Prophet Muhammad used to make the dua, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min ilmin la yanfa'ah. Wallah, I seek refuge in you from knowledge which is of no benefit. Useless knowledge. Can you give an example of useless knowledge in the acquired field of knowledge? No, no, we did that already. That's false knowledge. Pardon? Moon landing? Yeah, okay. Moon landing. Uh, what I like to give is uh, moon landing or Mars. They sent, America for example, spent more than $4 billion to send a rover vehicle to Mars. Europe right now, they've got another one going. It's going to arrive there shortly. Right? Europe spent how many more billions to send rover, you know, vehicles to Mars so it could rove around on the surface of Mars, pick up some of the dirt and analyze the dirt. Billions. America sent from back in the 90s, they sent. Four billion dollars. At the same time in America, more than four million Americans were homeless. Still today. You go and read homeless America, you'll see they give you the figures. Four million plus American citizens. The richest country on the face of the earth. Four million of its citizens are homeless. They live in the streets. People say, no, 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 no. Nobody lives in the streets in America. We've seen the uh, Empire State Building. We've seen the Twin Towers. We've seen all of this. And the yeah, that's there. But there's also four million who live in the streets, under bridges, at the bottom of those same skyscrapers, 
when the night comes, they spread out their pieces of paper and cardboard and they sleep there. No place to go. They lost their homes. Born in the street. Four million. So we say, the knowledge of the composition of dirt on Mars is useless knowledge. You have four million of your citizens without homes and you're going to check the, the composition of dirt on Mars? That is useless knowledge. That four billion should be used to house your citizens. And all the noise that was made about Gaddafi and Gaddafi put in his constitution that every citizen must have a home. Every citizen of Libya was given a home. That was the right. You are a citizen. It is your right to have a home. So, this is an example of useless knowledge. Some people say, well, you know, maybe we might need to go there. That's okay. When you have to go there? If we run out of space on the earth, time comes to go to Mars. Okay, then send your rover, find out what's on Mars. That's the time to find out. But now, you know what they said? In the south of England, there's some islands that are called the uh, Guernsey Islands or Jersey Islands, something like this. Small islands. Very small. They said that all... Huh? Guernsey? All the inhabitants of the earth, if we all stood side by side, we could fit on those islands. So are we short of space on the earth? That's totally nonsense. Total nonsense. Of course, we can't live standing side by side, okay? But still, the amount of space that exists on the earth is so great. To talk about Mars is nonsense. But because of the fact that they have said there is no God. We are here by accident. If it is an accident, it should have repeated itself. So we need to go to Mars and see, maybe in the soil we might find some microbes or something to show that it accidentally happened there too. That's what they're going to Mars about. To try to find justification for their belief that there is no God. And our existence is purely by accident. So, there they're gone for useless knowledge. Now, in the area of revealed knowledge, somebody might say, can we say there's some useless knowledge in revealed knowledge? Hmm? Knowledge from the Quran and the Sunnah could be useless? You know, maybe it sounds kind of heretical. You know, Dr. Bilal said there was useless knowledge from the Quran. <laughs> Somebody's making notes already if you're up on the internet by the time I get home. Ah, Dr. Bilal said there's useless knowledge in the Quran. Oh, I would have that. No, it is something relative. It is useless relative to the time, the circumstance, the person, etc. Meaning, for example, grade one. You're teaching your grade one students about the pillars of Islam. 
to teach them about what causes them to have ghusl. Is that useful knowledge for them? It's useless. It's useless. They haven't reached puberty. So it's, it's totally irrelevant to them. Similarly, to tell them about Hajj Tamattu'a and Hajj Ifrad. Huh? Is that useful knowledge for them? Useless knowledge. So this is what meaning that we, when we are imparting religious knowledge, it should be age appropriate. You know, and that's one of the principles for those who are involved in the teaching to make sure that what we're giving them is relevant to them. Because what turns off the student is you telling them stuff that has no meaning. It's just you memorize it. You know? Because what they understand that has relevance will sink and last. It will have meaning to them. But if it has no relevance, no meaning, it's go through one ear and out the other. So, this is the area where we have to be careful in the information of the part, imparting to make sure that it is relevant to those who are imparting it to. So, we said that the Islamic school, the approach, the theoretical approach is that of integrated knowledge. That whatever we're teaching should be somehow connected with Islam. We want the students to feel Islam has a part in all of this. There is nothing that Islam doesn't touch. Islam doesn't have something to say about. You know? We don't have Islam here and not Islam here. The two are merged. Now, when we talk about education, because we're talking now about the educational process, if you look for the definition of education, you'll find many different definitions of what constitutes education. The one which I found when I looked in uh, different dictionaries, etc., which I felt expressed most accurately what is education about, is that education is the process by which a civilization conveys its cultural values to the next generation. Con conveying cultural values to the next generation. No matter what you're teaching, whether it's English, it's maths, it's science, culture is being conveyed. Western culture, secular culture is being conveyed. And that is why we can't afford to have two-thirds of our syllabus, three-quarters of our syllabus focus on secular subjects 
and only a fraction on so-called Islamic subjects. The third point here that we said the goal of Islamized education or Islamic education is to bring morality back into the classroom. Which means that in the school the greatest prize that we should give our students is not for the top academics but for the top behavior Islamic moral character and behavior because this is ultimately the goal of Islam when the Prophet ﷺ said I was only sent to perfect for you the highest of moral character traits He's summing up the whole of Islam in terms of morality. Of course, that morality means morality in your dealing with God, with Allah, that you worship Him alone, that you obey Him. That it is immoral to worship others beside Him or instead of Him and to disobey Him. And that it is morally right to be generous, kind, caring. And it's morally wrong to steal, to murder, to cheat. And that it is morally correct to look after the environment in which we live, take care of it. Prophet spoke about it. And it's morally incorrect to destroy the environment, to pollute it, because we are held responsible for it. <coughs> so, it's the moral principles which are defined by Allah, because when you talk about moral morality, you're talking about good and bad, right and wrong. From what perspective are you going to do it? Because as they say, what may be right to some, may be wrong to others. One man's meat is another man's poison. So then, from what perspective? It has to be from the perspective of God. And this is what gives the Muslim Ummah, Islam, a moral compass which doesn't change. What was defined as evil, bad, wrong 1,400 years ago and 10,000 years ago before by the earlier prophets remains evil, bad and wrong today and will remain that way till the end of this world. Whereas in the other systems, the democratic system, morality is according to what is okay for most people. So if most people think that doing this is okay today, then it's okay. If tomorrow they decide it's not okay, then it's not okay. So morality is subject to the whims of people. It changes from time to time, place to place. And that is what Western civilization is propagating. That's how we should be. 
they have come to the conclusion that certain behavior, say for example homosexuality, is a norm, is a human norm, an alternative lifestyle. So for us to oppose it is to be unjust, unfair, unkind, all of this, homophobic, they don't give us, give us a name, homophobes, if you are opposed to homosexuality, you are called a homophobe. Homosexuality. That was the disease. And they had different cures for it. Electric, chemical, all kinds of things to help cure those people who were homosexuals. But by the mid-70s, homosexuality had started to come out and the demands for their rights had become so strong, the country which had already set morality based on principles that they came up with, they said, what takes place between a man and a woman is free from judgment. You can't judge about it. As long as they are what they call consenting adults. These are two principles. Consent, one is not forcing it on the other, and they're adults. They're able, they're mature enough to decide right and wrong for themselves. That's enough. So with that, fornication was no longer evil, punishable. Adultery was no longer evil, punishable. And what came behind it was homosexuality. Homosexuals said, it's the same situation with us. It's consenting adults. Isn't it? Consenting adults. So what right does the government or anyone have to say that what we're doing is wrong? No. And they submitted. They removed homosexuality from the psychiatrist's Bible. And they let the it's turning red, right? But you, it was green originally. I think it's uh, um, So the point is that morality is in accordance with the definition of God, of Allah. He created human beings. He knows what happens in their minds, in their hearts, their emotions. He knows all of humankind. So he has the ability, the right to judge what is right, what is wrong. And we are obliged to follow his instructions. Uh, this basically second workshop session um, 
The remainder, you want to call the call the break. We'll take some Q and A now and then go on, or should I? I leave the remainder for the next session. So I leave it to the next session. Okay, so we'll just stop here and um, take some Q and A from you to close off the session. We'll take. Uh, Two questions from the females, two from the males, or three and three. Go ahead, please. Salam alaikum. My name is Sayyid And like you just said, the essence of education is to, to bring back morality into the society. But the dilemma is sometimes the schools try their best, but it's like we're on different pages with the society. So what we learn in school is just like it's within the school. But when we go back home, back into the society, it's something very normal. Just for example, the birthday. Most Islamic schools don't allow birthdays. But in our society, it's something very common. So when the child comes to school, he knows that birthdays are not allowed. You're supposed to dress in a certain way. But when we go back into the society, it's something very common. So how do we, how do we take ourselves to be on the same level? the society and the schools? Well, what we have to do is to create a network of schools that creates another society, a society within the society, so that social relationships are based on common values. Not that you cut yourself off from the rest of society, but that those people who share your values, these are the people you need to spend more time around. You need to develop new friends. Your children should develop new uh, playmates, etc. So that outside of the class, they have a chance to socialize you know, with others who share their values. This is, uh, this is the solution. And that's as much as you can do. Uh, and it is hoped that as the schools increase, the number of students entering them, the qualities increase, then it will have a greater and greater impact in the society and bring about change on a bigger scale. But in the end, it becomes the issue of the jama'ah. You know, that we are together. We have a network of those sharing the same vision and mission. Then our interaction should be beyond the professional level. We should also go into the social level. We should get to know each other. You know, these types of worship workshops should help to build friendships with others from other schools, you know, and share what you have, uh, establish events where the schools are brought together, you know, the people are able to see others who share and do the same things that they do. So, this is what I could offer on that. From the men. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, my name is uh, Mustafa Masood. Um, I have one it's a comment on addition to what the sister just said. Um, I think this issue of networking 
um, it should be something Muslim schools should really try to follow up on. Now, even as a school on, on your own, there's a lot that can happen. For example, um, I would say our school is close to its 20th year of existence, and we have close to about 10 to 12 students, former students who have married each other right now. You know, so this is an example of what, teacher, what this can um, lead to. It's amazing, but it's a beautiful thing. And each time they are getting married, they tend to invite us and we go there and we celebrate this. So you start something, you don't know where it's going to lead. So what the Sheikh is saying is very, very important. That cycle. Then the issue of trying to Islamize the lesson plan for secular subjects. Uh, my own area of concern is what about those secular subjects in an Islamic school that are taught by non-Muslims? How do you succeed in getting them to do that? Thank you very much. This topic we will look at in more detail. Once you see the structure which I am proposing for Islamization. Seeking knowledge and obligation made easy. Thought about studying for a long time? Tuition fees keeping you from actually starting? Islamic Online University has led a revolution in online learning. The world's first tuition-free degree. BA in Islamic Studies. Access to the knowledge. Any place, anytime, anywhere. It just doesn't get any easier than that. Classes, texts, assignments, completely online. Set your own schedule for the semester. No overseas travel required for the exams. Subjects taught by qualified English-speaking scholars. Weekly live sessions in virtual classrooms with curricula based on those in El Medina University in Saudi Arabia, El Azhar University in Cairo, and other reputable institutions around the world. Why wait any longer? You pay just a symbolic registration fee and are ready to begin the adventure of higher education. The most diverse student body of any university in the world 130,000 plus registered students from 217 countries. Log in to the website for more details. www.islamiconlineuniversity.com